I hope you're strapped in and strapped on. The America's most successful legal sex worker. The reality is sex work isn't going to go away. We need to learn to live with it. And once we learn to live with it, we will actually be able to prevent harm from happening. Hello, folks, and welcome back to Sex Essentialist. As always, I am your host, M, and today I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Alice Little. Alice is best known as America's most successful legal sex worker and currently works at the Chicken Ranch Brothel in Las Vegas, Nevada, here in the U.S. She's also an advocate for sex workers' rights, often speaking with politicians and leg- legislators to increase their understanding about the industry. And Alice, you're also an online educator too, right? I mean, I know you have a pretty successful uh, YouTube channel um, that's centered around education and, and coaching in addition to everything else you do. Um, so Jane of all trades really in the space, but welcome. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I do a little bit of everything You could say I wear many, many hats for sure. Yes, I love it. And we're going to get into and under all of the hats. (laughs) Um, Before we get started uh, in earnest, Alice, I'd love to have you share with the audience how you identify whatever that means to you. Oh, uh, she, her, uh, my preferred job title is that of a legal sex worker. I think it's important to differentiate the different types of sex work because not many people realize Mm. that within the umbrella, there are many different types of work and it looks very different for different folks, depending on where within the world of sex work they are. Mm. I love that. I think the language around, um, I mean, obviously the language around sex and sexuality is one of utmost importance, but especially when we think about some of the political and legislative implications of it. Um, That's a really interesting point. I want to dig deeper into that. Um, Before um, we we do that, though, I'd love to hear a bit about you, right? What's your what's your story, if you will? And and how did you get started in the legal sex work industry? and, And how has it evolved over time to include these elements of education and advocacy as well? So I got my start, gosh, back at the age of 18, I started working at the front desk of a BDSM dungeon in New York City. I was responsible for organizing their educational track and scheduling all the different presenters. So I also was able to benefit from that education as I was able to watch Mm -hmm. all of the classes. At some point in time, there was a terrible, terrible amount of snow that happens in New York. The presenter couldn't come in, and I jumped in, started doing the class on a different topic that I was familiar with, and that was kind of the gateway to being an educator myself. From there, I was invited to teach at a number of different dungeons, BDSM events, conferences, I ended up teaching in 48 states, two different countries, and learned about Nevada's legal brothels at one of those events. One of the other educators that I was speaking with shared her experience of working at the Bunny Ranch, and it sounded so interesting that I decided to apply online and got my start that way. That's amazing. I it's it's so interesting because of course in contrast to um a lot of folks on social media today who are 
talking about pursuing sex work through some of the more technologically driven platforms like OnlyFans, right? It's such a different uh, trajectory than sort of the linear career path that you had that mirrors in many ways the jobs in America that are corporate and considered quote unquote traditional, right? Um, It's a fun and interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, it's important to note this was back in 2015 when I first started working within Nevada brothels. This is before OnlyFans and Mm -hmm. these platforms that kind of allowed for this more creator-led, creator-controlled platforms to exist. And true independent contractor status as a sex worker is something that was limited to just a handful of venues. Nevada brothels, strip clubs, which God knows I have two left feet and certainly nowhere near graceful enough. (laughs) So that was not on my radar as far as option goes. Um, Being a phone sex operator, working Mm -hmm. for something like My Free Cams, Cam Services. And so I kind of took a look at some of those different venues before settling on the Nevada brothels as being the right fit for me in terms of what I was looking to do. It's an excellent point, right? The space has shifted immensely. Um, I mean, over over decades, but even just in the last uh, 10 years or so. And, and I think that that holds true about the language that we use um, surrounding uh, sex work as, as well. I'm curious to hear what your first experience uh, at the Chicken Ranch brothel uh, was like. Your first day on the job, if you will. Yes. So I switched locations during the pandemic Like many other industries, Nevada brothels were completely shuttered in March of 2020 over the coronavirus pandemic. It's important Mm -hmm. to note that this is the very first time in history ever since legalizing in the 70s that the brothels were closed. These places Mm. were open 24-7, 365. They, They don't close. Some of these brothels don't even have a lock on the front door. They don't close. Christmas, New Year's, they do not close. Like, we'll evacuate for a fire, sure, but then everybody's going to go back. They they don't close. (laughs) So this is the first time these places ever closed. And during the closure, I took the opportunity to evaluate what I wanted to do long term and found myself looking towards the Las Vegas market. Now, each and Mm. every brothel is owned and operated through different management. And so I decided to make the change. And so it was a year and a half before I was able to start doing in-person services again. Mm. And I remember being so nervous that first day at a new location after not working in person for over a year and a half. It was like I had not done this at all. Like you would have thought I was brand new again. I was so (laughs) nervous. Like I'm trying to relearn the layout. I got lost several times. I nearly ran down one of my coworkers trying to get to the lineup. Oh no. At the Bunny Ranch, the process was that the bell rings and you better move it. Like you've got about 30 seconds to get to the front parlor for the lineup or it's going to start without you. 
at the chicken ranch, we get more like five minutes to take your time, get ready. Okay. And then mm-hmm. wait before the lineup begins. I was so used to this system of like having to get up and go for the lineup that like I jumped up and nearly ran into somebody and they're like, what are you doing? Girl, calm <laughs> down. And I'm like, wait, why is nobody rushing? What is going on? Right. <laughs> You've got like five minutes. Chill. That's so funny. <laughs> Night and day difference. For listeners who are completely new to this idea of brothels outside of like media representations, I mean, my I grew up in Texas. My mom did community theater, and I went to Best Little Whorehouse in Texas several times growing up because she was always Miss Mona. That that was my childhood and baseline media representation of a brothel, right? I'm sure everyone has that jumping off point. In in the context of the legal framework for for sex work in a brothel environment, what does it look like? What you mentioned, you know, every location is going to have sort of a different uh, management behind it as businesses do. Um, so w- what what does that structure look like? Yes. So Nevada is the only state to have legal brothels still mm-hmm. back in the 70s while many states chose to do away with and abolish their red light districts nevada decided to go ahead and create legislation for its existing brothels what happened mm-hmm. at that point was grandfathering which allowed for the existing locations to remain but no new locations could open after that point this means mm-hmm. that there are still only a handful of brothels, somewhere between 20 and 21 in operation, typically in more rural counties. The closest Mm -hmm. brothel to Las Vegas, where I work, is the Chicken Ranch. And even that's going to be about a 60-minute drive off of the Las Vegas Strip to arrive at our Mm. doorstep. So these locations tend to be a little bit more set back, a little bit more remote, But that's about where the stereotype ends. Mm -hmm. They're actually fairly modern, beautiful locations that have been remodeled many times over. These locations are highly regulated, extremely safe, and there's many, many steps in place to ensure our safety. It's important to recognize that all of the process to become a sex worker is handled by the local sheriff's office. Mm. And there is a very extensive background process inclusive of an FBI fingerprint and background check to become a sex worker mm. to make 100% sure that everyone is there consensually, legally, yes. safely, is doing all of the things that they're supposed to do. In addition to a weekly STD and STI check, every location is owned by someone different. They all kind of have goofy names, Chicken Ranch, Bunny Ranch, Mm -hmm. Mustang Ranch, Bella's Hacienda, Stardust Ranch, Inez's. Like, they're all just kind of old, tiny names. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It adds a little bit to the the Wild West appeal of the fact that, hey, legal brothels are, in fact, still in existence. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of special because it's the only place where they still exist. Yeah. I think it's 
kind of interesting that the legislation is done county by county. Mm -hmm. And so one county could offer one set of laws and requirements while a different county is going to require a complete different set of process for a sex worker. And so when I speak to my experience at the chicken ranch, I'm talking about the experience of a nigh county brothel worker Mm. or when I'm talking about my experiences at the bunny ranch I'm talking about my experiences as a lion county sex worker which are going to be two very different experiences as they are on two entirely different sides of the state that's super interesting and I always I always am curious about when uh, regulations are you know, what determines whether or not they should be kind of at the local, state, or federal level. Um, I'm curious how different in your experiences the the regulations, um, whether in regard to personal safety or I'm guessing there are like health code building regulation differences as well. Like how how different are those things across counties or are they predominantly the same with just a few differences or so on? Just within the time that I have worked within the brothels, Mm -hmm. I have witnessed the counties update and change the legislation. Previously, Nye County had legislation that essentially required sex workers to remain at the brothel location for the entire duration of their tour. Essentially, the legal language stated that their doctor clearance would expire if they left the brothel property for longer than a period of 24 hours, which then would require her to pay another doctor fee and then wait for clearance before she'd be able to work. Oh my God. Essentially making it so that they were unable to leave. The logic behind this is that they did not want the sex workers leaving and going and having unprotected sex. The reality is that stigma was not based on any sort of reality, truth, or fact. And ironically, shortly before the pandemic in 2019, a movement called StopLockdown.org was organized to help stop that ridiculous process that was a part of my county code and was successful in getting the county code change Mm. to end lockdown processes just in time for the entire country to then go into lockdown during the coronavirus. Yeah, the timing. (laughs) Yay, we stopped the lockdown and now we're all stuck at home. And now the brothers are closed for the first time ever. Yeah. ridiculous timing but it was very important and meaningful legislation change Mm. because that now is significantly more sex worker friendly language and orientation additionally the legislation and verbiage around the county cards changed for Nye County previously we had a prostitute card That, that's not really great. That's kind of an outdated yeah. word that comes with a lot of stigma. Some people are choosing to reclaim it. Not everybody is. Yeah. It's kind of a contentious and questionable one. And so during the pandemic, legislation was updated and the cards now read courtesan 
cars, which is oh. way more accurate and friendly language wise. That's so interesting, though. I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm familiar with the term courtesan from a historical standpoint, but frankly, I didn't know that it was actively in use um, in the legal sex work space. Um, but sounds like that's e- either as appropriate or more so than legal sex work, or, or both. Both terms are are friendly to folks in the industry. Is that correct? Yeah. So oftentimes, I'll call myself a legal companion, mm-hmm. luxury courtesan, legal sex worker. Not necessarily everyone is familiar with the phrase courtesan, sure. which kind of implies more than just sex, yeah. but companionship. This is someone who's able to offer support, perhaps offer mentorship, education, mm. kind of help guide the way intimately to more exciting things which is more representative of what I actually do than just somebody showing up, arriving, getting off and leaving. That's really not what happens. Experiences are far more meaningful, often lengthy in time. And many times I end up seeing somebody again and again and again and developing a relationship with them. Mm. Yeah, I want to. I'd love to unpack that a bit more um, and and understand. I mean, one, I was going to say, I love to hear that. You know, due to what sounds like relative grassroots activism um, within the community, that legislation was able to be changed, especially given something that um, seems to have allotted for more autonomy and agency for the legal sex workers impacted by by the county's regulations, especially because in my mind and in any in any encounter that you know utilizes your body you you everyone deserves autonomy and agency and obviously in this case being able to leave the brothel is an important part of that so that's a really cool um shift and and I'm excited to hear about more initiatives that there might be kind of on the table going forward but i i would love to unpack more of what you just said Alice around what a day, um, a typical day for you is like, and um, more of an understanding of some of the nuance to being a courtesan, and as you as you specified, and and what the layers of that are besides the stereotype of like someone shows up, you know, gets off and, and heads out, um, and and may or may not come back. Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and describe kind of two different days at the same time because my day is going to be a little bit different than that of the average Mm. courtesan at the chicken ranch. I happen to only be available by appointment. At this point in my career, I'm able to be a little bit more selective Mm -hmm. about my clientele, what kind of experiences I want to opt into. And as such, people are required to plan to meet with me in advance. Mm -hmm. So rather than staying on location at the ranch and doing the traditional lineup when somebody comes in and doesn't have an appointment, I only go in when I am specifically meeting with somebody and we already are planning to meet. Mm. So some of the typical brothel experiences aren't things that aren't necessarily a part of my day today anymore. Sure. For me, I now tend to balance my day at the brothel with my day doing content creation for YouTube, 
OnlyFans doing online digital meetings with people ranging from sexy, intimate things Mm -hmm. to more counseling, mentorship-focused meetings. And then I'll travel into the ranch to meet with whomever it is that I've planned to see that specific day. I'll have a room picked out for the two of us, and I'll arrive about an hour or so before our planned meeting and get everything all set up, the bed, the linens, make sure that everything is all set and the room smelling fresh. Mm. And then, of course, we'll get to meet in person. All experiences start with a tour of the property This gives everyone an opportunity to see the amenities of the facility, Mm -hmm. get a better idea and picture of what they might want to enjoy with me. From there, we'll head back to whatever private suite I'm using at the time, and we'll have a conversation about what they have in mind for the two of us, what activities they want to try, how long they might like to spend together. It might be an hour. It might be 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people and even spend an entire weekend with me where we just be super indulgent and spend the 48 hours just diving into a really deep, intense girlfriend experience together. Mm. Sometimes it's a couple that wants to come and spend time with me. There's all sorts of different scenarios and each individual experience is tailored to that specific person. Mm. Because I have an appointment with them, I've had the opportunity to email a little bit back and forth, connect over text message, and get to know them a little bit more before we meet face-to-face at the ranch, which I find makes the experience a little bit easier for the both of us as I have a more clear picture of what they may have in mind Mm. and can kind of guide them to the more correct experience for them. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and and makes complete sense. I, I saw a bit on your your website around um, some of the languages you just used, um, girlfriend experience being being one of the phrases. And um, you know, obviously, you have um, you know built a career for yourself around this. And uh, I'm guessing for you as a professional, it's it's nice to be able to identify you know what you know, not, not necessarily what's expected of you, but what um, a client is seeking. So that way you can be, be gratified professionally and also, you know, pick and choose what experiences you want to engage in and sh- continue to shape your career in a way that is fulfilling for you in that way. Yes. And I think it's interesting too, the way that you kind of picked up on the idea that most people don't necessarily know what it is that they're actually looking for Mm. so much as it is that they know that this is an experience that they would like to have and something that they feel is going to be a good fit for them and something that they could really benefit from. Yeah, And sometimes it can be really challenging to put the language towards the exact thing that they're looking for and instead it can be easier for someone to share some of their prior intimate experiences kind of what their hopes are for their own intimate future and then that kind of naturally leads me to be able to make suggestions based off of my experience as to what's going to be the best fit for them and that is something that truly only comes with years upon years of experience in this industry like I certainly was not capable of that same 
capacity for reading people when I first began this, like it definitely is a skill I've developed over time. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, th- this is why you're an expert, right? Like the expert, really, because <laughs> because it is it, it's it's um, it is one thing for those of us who aren't doing it professionally to educate ourselves in whatever capacity, right? Learn from people in the sex workspace or not um, about how to improve our own individual intimacies. And it's another thing to, I mean, really book, book an appointment with an expert like you would, you know, sitting down with someone who has a PhD in something, right? And saying, you know, I don't have the language for this. It's not my expertise. It is your expertise. Where do we go from here in order for me to, you know, figure out and experience uh, what it is I'm hoping to experience. And it, and it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I know, you know, we've already dispelled this idea that it is someone showing up, getting off and, and disappearing into the night, right? But it feels like when working with you that people are, I mean, not necessarily unpacking things from a, a an emotional standpoint, but maybe that's part of it, but it is sort of a, a an ability to self-discover and explore alongside you as sort of their guide through that. Does that, is that resonate with your experience in, in, in your career? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And many times people do end up unpacking various past life experiences, whether it be something traumatic mm. that happened to them, overcoming a hesitancy towards intimacy after a bad experience and then opting into their first truly consensual experience. Maybe it's somebody who has recently experienced a divorce Mm. and they have a hang up around being intimate with someone that isn't their wife or, you know, their partner died over the pandemic and now they're learning to be intimate with somebody new for the first time in 40 years. Like there's any number of various scenarios. Mm. I see many virgins, people who have just never gotten around to having sex and then the pandemic happened which kind of pushed it back even further and they're just opting into having a really good first experience by choosing to stay professional um couples all the time that are looking to have like their first threesome but they don't want to have the concern about like a relationship with another woman Mm -hmm. like ladies I'm not trying to steal your man it's all about (laughs) you like No, I am like the person to go to to have that threesome because at the end of the day, if everyone is not on board, it's not going to happen. Like there's no surprise threesomes. I'm not going to opt into traumatizing someone. And that's really, I think, where the selectivity for me comes from in the sense where I do have the privilege of being able to say no to scenarios like, oh, I want to surprise my wife with this threesome. And it's like, great, I'm not a surprise present any more than a puppy is. Like, you do not surprise your partner with a puppy or a sex worker. Don't don't do that, please. (laughs) Like, talk to her first. You know what can be the surprise is like when you're going to do it, like, book a trip to Vegas one of the days you're going to come and see me but she needs to know Mm -hmm. that she is coming to see me you need to have consent I'm not a surprise present yeah any more than like you can bring your like son to me oh my adult son is a virgin and I'm going to bring him to you to lose his virginity it's like that's great but unless he really wants that no you're not right yeah like you're not going to consent 
to anything for anybody yeah. else. That's like first and foremost, the the number one reason why I will decline something is because someone isn't choosing to allow the other person to consent and opt into the experience. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, first of all, absolutely, because consent is is everything and obviously wholehearted, enthusiastic uh, verbal consent is, is everything, right? But at the same time, too, for, I mean, at least in, in my perspective, the the act of someone saying I'm going to basically gift you and your services. I mean, again, you are providing a service, but you're also not an object, right? Like you're a person to have a conversation with and determine if, um, you know, the service and the potential client is the right fit for you. And it's a little presumptuous on their part to say, Hey, Alice, I'm going to gift you to my virgin son. I hope, hope that's okay. Yeah. It's, it's like, mm. There's lots of ways and lots of things to gift someone. (laughs) That's not the way to do it. And then I find that it creates a sense of pressure and obligation that doesn't really lead to a quality threesome in the case of couples, which is something that I really specialize in. Mm. I have seen more couples now at the chicken ranch than I have at any other point in my career. Like since the pandemic, more couples than ever are interested in being more explorative in the bedroom and discovering what it means to be non-monogamous yeah. and a little bit more open in the bedroom. That's so interesting. I, it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I have have been at the very least, um, sex educator space adjacent for a number of years. And I've, I've certainly seen the conversation, the mainstream, I'll say within the space conversation around ethical non-monogamy and, and polyamory as, um, growing rapidly, right. We're, we're identifying like, like with anything in, in the queer and sex spaces, I suppose we're identifying terminology and identities surrounding, um, exploring some of this. And that's not to say you have to associate exploration with a specific label, but as as the community does develop that language and does seek to identify what different varieties of exploration can look like, um, it's normalizing it, right? And and um, in a positive way because you know no one relationship has to mirror that of another. But it's interesting post post COVID, couples were like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna dabble. I'm gonna get out there and see uh, what nominomy looks like. It's super interesting. Um, are you seeing any shifts or um, changes like post-COVID or otherwise in like kink requests or or um, it, is the type oh, of play changing? Oh, yeah. yeah. What does that look like? Oh, my God. So much more medical fetish. Oh, my God. Oh. Like I could have predicted that. <laughs> that's like, honestly – I mean, that's wow. amazing. I love the way that humanity processes global trauma. That's so interesting. <laughs> like, you know what? I have had more black mask fetish requests than I ever have before more latex gloves than you could possibly imagine and you know I embrace all of it it's fantastic it's wonderful it's a really good way to process exactly as you said what we all experienced and that is a wonderful way to do it role play requests specifically naughty nurse and like dirty (laughs) doctor type role play requests also have increased a little bit less now it seems like that trend has kind of peaked and started to crash a little bit like all things I have noticed 
role play fantasies tend to come in waves. Yeah, that makes right sense. now there's a lot of requests for um cheerleaders. I have noticed oh. it's very in right now as we're in football season. Oh, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> you know, football season it goes hand in hand, especially as the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas this year. So mm. everybody's getting those uh those cheerleader fantasies in. They're <laughs> checking that off their uh, to-do list, I guess, this year. This is the year for it. God, like four years ago, it was like schoolgirl Harry Potter, like yep. magic girl, any combination thereof. It was just like, throw the plaid at it and a magic wand and just call it good. It was like <laughs> everyone's kryptonite. I feel like in terms of uh, books lately, like elves and fairies and high fantasy is really making a, a resurgence and like, and maybe... Maybe that's more women than men too, um, cis women versus cis men. But um, that's so interesting. I, I, this is one of the things I absolutely love about this space and and about understanding and exploring sexuality in general is that it really is such a predominant avenue for the way that we process day to day. Right. I'm not not to say that everything we do manifests in our sexual fantasies or desires or cravings right but like a lot of it does not everything so yeah so much of it does not like literally everything everything but like kind of almost everything though yeah like if I have a baked baked potato for dinner I'm not gonna like ask a sex worker to dress up as a baked potato but if I'm processing conflict with someone in my life yeah I might I might want to role play (laughs) having intercourse with someone who mirrors the conflict in my life or the exciting thing in my life or whatever that or or certainly the fantasy the football cheerleader i love that that's Uh, so funny balloons that brings us to balloons you're talking about the uh the conflict and processing conflict (laughs) the second somebody mentions balloons i'm like oh i i see we're going through some big changes in our life aren't we all right so tell me so tell me more about the balloons. Is this a big, a big change or a little change? How big are the balloons that I'm going to be going to be using here? Oh, the big 18 inch diameter balloons. Oh, this is a big, big life change. And is this, a, <laughs> oh, I could have guessed this is going to be all about the anticipation of the one balloon popping because it's one big problem and not a lot of little things. Got it. Yeah. It's always like, I can just predict this stuff. It's like, I ask the questions, but it's like, I know the answers. I feel like a fortune. Yeah. I'm like, ah, I knew <laughs> I could have guessed. Yeah. I, I wonder what it says about me that I did default to not what is my, my, uh, book or movie fantasy but like what am I trying to process <laughs> through the sexual encounter right <laughs> what what big life thing capital b capital L, l capital t am I working through um it's super it's super interesting and I I always look at every year when um Pornhub releases their annual insights I always go and read those reports yes. because it is absolutely yes. fascinating oh god yes and next year oof Next year is a political year, which means that it's going to be, oh, it's going to be great. I get to see the differences between conservatives and Republicans and libertarians and the occasional Green Party participant every once in a blue moon. (laughs) Very fun. It's very fun. Usually something very nature focused, very, very like like streaking outdoor sex at least the only two I've ever spoken to any anyway I mean both yeah. the same thing outside that's so funny actually <laughs> what a weird overlap 
I would say it surprises me, but it doesn't really. That kind of tracks. It's great. Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. I mean, it, it's like all the stereotypes that you are imagining are probably quite accurate. But the beautiful thing about this industry is that it doesn't matter. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what your thing is. It is a totally judgment-free space for pretty much everything. And it's like, I'm not going to opt into anything that doesn't interest me or doesn't appeal to me. Like I'm going to decline and refer to a colleague if it's not a good fit for me, or I know that somebody else is a better fit for that thing they're looking for. If it's something that isn't a specialty of mine, like it's a really fun way for people to just have whatever experience it is that they're looking for and just a pretty straightforward non-judgmental way yeah it's awesome I that's it's so cool and to me it must be super cool to see um firsthand everything that people just the way that people are reacting to the world around them and and the way that that manifests in their sexual desires and and exploration interests I think that's super cool (laughs) um so when we were when we were going into kind of a typical day, I know we were, were looking at specifically sort of what your um, typical day or, or what your career looks like, right? I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, more of the we'll say average, not not using that word in a in a negative way, of course, but in a, more of an average or general day to day for a legal sex worker working at um, the Chicken Ranch brothel. Yeah. So most ladies do choose to stay on property while they are on tour. Most of the ladies travel in from out of state Mm. in order to work at the ranch. And like I mentioned earlier, the chicken ranch is an hour away from Las Vegas. So not everyone wants to do an hour drive to work and then an hour drive away from work. Mm particularly if they're looking to work lineup. Lineup is the process by which a guest gets to meet with the lady if they have not already made an appointment and selected a specific lady that they're interested in meeting. If someone has an appointment, they'll meet with that lady specifically. But if they do not have an appointment, then they will have an opportunity to see all of the ladies that are currently available in the house. This is done through the lineup where all of the available ladies are summoned by a bell that goes off in all the various rooms. There's also a light that flashes in each of the ladies' rooms so they can see if they have the noise turned off. And then they have five minutes to line up. After that five minutes is done, each of the ladies introduces herself one by one to the gentleman or woman or couple. And after all of the ladies have introduced themselves, the person then has the opportunity to select whichever lady they're most interested in to then go on a tour of the property. Hmm. Curious what the, um, I guess, frequency of returning clients is in those contexts, um, I know in your experience, you obviously have folks who, um, you know, may very likely come back for uh, multiple kind of sessions, if you will. So how does that differ for for the rest of the ladies? 
So what I find is that everyone has regulars. Mm. Each lady tends to have a handful of regulars and each location will also have kind of a handful of regulars. Now, some guests will see one lady or one or two ladies and that's it. They found their person. They're not interested in meeting other providers. For other guests, part of the fun is getting to meet the other providers. And so they choose to do a lineup and kind of see the variety of ladies and change who their provider is each time. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's always an influx of new ladies. And there always tends to be a small handful of ladies that tend to reliably work at that location for kind of a long period of time. I'm curious in, in either your experience or anecdotally what you see um, kind of around the see and here around the ranch, are there ever instances where um, boundaries need to be set with regulars? Like if, if there's ever a concern for you as a, as a legal sex worker, as a courtesan that, um, you know, someone's, you know, too attached or maybe what, what they are, were originally, you know, getting out of the dynamic with you is no longer in your mind, um, you know, fulfilling or it's not working anymore. What, what do some of those challenges interpersonally look like? So most sex workers practice something called bounded intimacy, which kind of describes and prescribes both the style of relationship as well as the boundaries of the relationship, Mm. which is to say that our time together exists and ends during our set time together. At the ranch, there's kind of no getting around the realities that you are within kind of a limited environment. Mm. You're kind of staying on that location. There's certain rules and regulations and safety precautions, all of which have to be followed. And when it is time to leave, it is time to leave and you will most certainly be escorted out and not welcome back if you do not leave when it is time to leave. Mm. At the same time, let's not pretend that people aren't human and feelings most certainly happen. I think that it's important to do frequent check-ins with guests as to what the nature of the relationship is, how they feel about it, and make sure that everybody is kind of on the same page and same understanding as to the nature of the relationship. There are guests that choose to date me and they see me as their girlfriend. They don't have an interest in having a relationship with anyone else. They know what I do for a living. They have no interest of trying to have me quit and leave this career or be monogamous with them. They don't have expectations of me moving in with them, but like I am their chosen girlfriend. I'm known some of these people for years and years and years Mm -hmm. and that is a unique and special kind of relationship and it's one that we both are able to opt into consensually willingly knowingly and of course there's always those check-ins as to is everybody still feeling satisfied fulfilled having their Mm -hmm. needs met etc that's, I mean, it, it's one of the things I love about, and I'm a very structured person in my life. I need like process. It's how my brain works. But there's something really, to me, powerful in situations where context surrounding intimacy and sex require negotiation. And even in some cases, contracts or 
documents again like I'm I sound like such a nerd when I say that and I'm always like I can't spreadsheet my sex life I need to stop doing that but you know in in whether it's setting up a BDSM scene or creating um or establishing boundaries in in your situation or or you know confirming that everyone is still satisfied and and comfortable and and happy and safe and well you know I I think it's there are learnings to be had in those contexts that I I feel like we should all apply in our you know even if if you're uh you know been married for 40 years it's just always been you and that one other person and everything kind of feels like it's routine why not have some of those communication tools in place to ensure that things continue to run smoothly if you will yes and that's one of the beautiful things too when couples choose to come and see me is that part of our first conversation is kind of the check-in of is everybody comfortable is everybody consenting Mm -hmm. What are your goals for this? Is this something you're looking to then go and like have a swingers experience or a polyamory experience? Is this kind of its own containerized one and done sort of thing where this is a bucket list item, but you don't want to continue to do it afterwards? Like, let's check in with where you are and what your unique goals are for our time together. So this way, everyone is on the same page. Yeah. And I guess that's really true regardless of who it is because no two sessions have ever truly been the same. Like even with the same person, there's always different context and different energy going into it. And and I think that's, again, part of the fun of this. Yeah, yeah and obviously part of um, your expertise, right, is being ha- having developed the attunement or sensitivity not just to – you know, reading, being able to read one person over a period of time, being but being able to know how to ask the right questions, or like you said earlier, you may already know the answer, but important to ask and still have a gateway for open communication. And um, you know, that's again your your expertise, right? Your your lived working experience and um, practice in doing this. Yeah, and thank you for that. It's. An interesting career in the sense that in the porn world, which is also very much so a type of sex work, mm-hmm. someone's career can absolutely explode and develop within a year, and they can have multiple quick, rapid experiences going kind of from zero to 60 very quickly. What I find within my world as a legal sex worker is that even within someone's first year of success, there is so much knowledge to be gained Mm. from that continuous experience. And when people talk about entering the career of being a sex worker and they say to me, oh, I want to work at a brothel, I want to get rich and make a bunch of money quickly, I really pause because your career doesn't start truly for several years into it Mm. that's when you really begin to have the deep understanding and knowledge that truly allows you to help people beyond just figuring out how to get them off and that's the kind of experience that I think truly only comes with that lived experience yeah well and, and this is one of the things that I really want listeners to understand, especially for listeners who maybe do still hold some some stigmas or or have some misconceptions around sex work and legal sex work, right? Um, which is you know common and and very much the you know the way that we think about sex work in general is dictated by the society we live in. and um, but you know, 
the way that you're describing your, I mean, your professional development really mirrors that of jobs that we as a society deem as being very common or traditional, right? You you start at an entry-level position and you learn and grow and develop. And sometimes you fail and you learn from those mistakes. And over time, you you become, you know, a, a, an expert, right? That's how it works. It's, um, it's a contrast to this um, very internet-driven notion of like influencer popularity or celebrity status, whether, you know, tied to porn or, or just in general, right? So um, it's interesting for me to hear you describe it that way. And again, I hope it continues to dispel some of the stigmas surrounding legal sex work because it is so much like other jobs that we, we talk about in, in our society. Yeah, in many ways, sex work is the original work. Mm-hmm. It is historically known as the first job. Yeah. And it's the first career that we have documentation of. And like, when we look at history, going back to things like Hammurabi's Code, mm-hmm. the first set of legislation ever, it talks about the treatment of sex workers yes. and how they should be honored and regarded within society. So like, the stigma surrounding sex workers is actually a new and learned phenomenon mm-hmm. that really started around World War II, right around the time that the church lost control, get this, of the brothels yeah. that it had within its buildings. And we can really go back just a hundred years, not even a hundred years, and see this dramatic shift in attitude mm-hmm. just within this short period of time and I think that we as a society will have the ability to unlearn and recover from this stigma far more rapidly than it took for it to fall into place Mm. and I really think that we're headed in the right direction actively now shows like this really are paving the way forward for those conversations to happen for our society to begin to recover from some of the stigma and shame it has around intimacy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, thank you for that one for, for the optimism here, because I do think it's so easy. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the folks I talk to on the show, I think um, sometimes seek opportunities for hope, right? Because there is so much, um, you know, politically stigmatized language and discourse around, um, you know, denying folks, uh, accessible sex education or stigmatizing um, sex work or, or obviously outlawing sex work. And so, um, you know, thank you for the hope and the optimism because I feel like we need it every chance we can get. But, um, you know, also I think it, it is, it's, it's folks like you and it's, it's content creators out here who are seeking to continue to dispel some of the, the myths and misconceptions around sex work. And like you said, it, that's a, it's a learned stigma it's a learned misconception a learned um taboo around the the space um that is certainly something that we i think are all for those in in this space are are looking to dispel and and improve over time um i'm curious what um your your activism work um specifically speaking with politicians and legislators looks like and and what do you expect to be sort of um the the potential future of legal sex work um in the u.s So the first time that I had an opportunity to speak with the media and really hear and be heard, I guess, 
was when my income was shared, not necessarily with my consent, mm. but as an example of success within the industry. I had earned more money that year than anyone else in the industry ever had yeah. ever before. And it was being used to like show and highlight the success, which on one hand, fantastic sex work is work and women absolutely have the ability to earn incredible amounts of money yeah. from this. At the same time, it doesn't necessarily paint the entire picture. Mm. That's when I realized that I didn't want anybody else speaking for me ever again and decided that rather than people taking facts about me and taking them out of context, I wanted to be proactive and start the conversations myself. I kept an eye on the news and anytime that I would see something related to sex work, decriminalization, legalization, efforts made to either improve conditions for sex workers or something that has been done that potentially caused harm to sex workers, I reached out to them. Mm. And so I've had conversations with people from Vermont, people in California, legislators in Nevada, I think seven or eight different states. I've had the opportunity to present for multiple college classes at this point. I routinely give one-on-one -on -one interviews for students that are writing theses around the decriminalization of sex work. Mm. And I make a point to be as accessible as possible to those that are potentially going to pave the way towards a brighter future for not just sex workers in Nevada, the handful lucky few that get to work legally, but all sex workers. Yeah. And that really leads me to the important point here that what I think the future of sex work in Nevada is that it's going to change as decriminalization happens and decriminalization needs to happen. Mm -hmm. What we need is decriminalization in order to improve conditions for the most marginalized of workers who don't have the benefit of a safe legal workplace to be in. And once we have decriminalization, then we can go about figuring language that allows us to regulate an industry to center the rights of sex workers first. Yes. This way, any businesses that are formed, brothels, co-ops, ideally, independent workers like they have in New Zealand, whatever it so may be, that all needs to be designed in a way that centers the workers and prevents people from profiteering off of their labor. Yes. And in, and in your mind, what does the government, what's the role of government, I guess, in, in regulating this? Is is what you're seeing firsthand in some of the changes that have been made over time in, in various counties in Nevada um, in the right direction and something that other states or, or the federal government can replicate? Or are there continual changes that need to be made or as it's decriminalized um, at, a, at a larger you know, stateside level, um, does this need to take a, a whole new form in order to ensure that sex workers' rights um, and autonomy are at the core of it? It's really challenging to say because the majority of sex worker activists maintain hope and advocate for true decriminalization with no legalization. Mm. I don't know if this makes me a pessimist or a realist, but I think that we're highly unlikely to see 
just decriminalization without some form of regulation or legalization taking place at the same time. Much in the same way that we saw this happen with cannabis, where they decriminalized it, yeah. they removed the penalties for those who had been charged. They also had to come up with a way by which this product was going to be sold, ensured that it isn't falling into the hands of minors. It, it is just unrealistic to think in American capitalist society that they are going to allow completely unregulated enterprise to exist. Yeah. If we want change to happen, we have to be a little bit more realistic than that and ensure that whatever regulations happen are good regulations. Mm -hmm. Regulations around things like testing protocols that mm -hmm. ensure safety for the sex workers. We need to have regulations around condom usage so this way sex workers aren't being pressured into providing services that aren't going to be mindful of their safety. Mm -hmm. There needs to be regulations around the age of consent of yeah. how old can the sex worker be? How old can the client be? What does that verification process look like to ensure that everybody is of age? Those are just the very basic realities and the very basic questions that we're going to need to answer and I think that legislation most likely is going to happen at a state by state, mm. county by county level, where different counties will opt into it, where other counties will likely choose to opt out of it for various reasons, whether it be that they simply don't have the population to support sex work, mm. or it simply doesn't make sense in their area because they are not set up to legislate for it at this time. Mm. I think that we're going to see it be a very slow process, something that likely takes five to 10 years before we see large sweeping change at around the 20 to 25 year mark. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, there there is so much discourse to be had here about what the future of legal um, or decriminalized sex work can look like. And I think it's important to keep in mind I, I, so much again, and maybe I'm in a, an Internet grounded echo chamber surrounding idea of, of this idea of sex work. But there's so much discourse going on about what technology means for sex work. And it's so important to remember that things like policy change and legislation are equally, if not more important for the future of, of sex work um, going forward. Um, so I appreciate, obviously, your involvement, activism in the space, and but also just being able to share that with folks tuning in. Um, I think it can be really eye-opening because it's not something that we're seeing really enough of in, in the news or, or in online media. Yeah, and unfortunately, policy change happens extremely, extremely slowly. Yeah. Just look at cannabis. We still don't have any sort of federal level policy. I believe it's still criminalized at the federal level, mm. despite the fact that I think the majority of states now have some sort of either medical, recreational, or both in place. Mm. Like, I think that we will see sex work legislation follow a similar trajectory towards cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I think that we'll probably even see the maps of adoptee states looking very similar yeah. too. If we take a look at states where the DA has chosen to not prosecute consensual sex work, not the same thing as decriminalization, but it's a small step in the right direction. Yeah. If we look at those counties, those also tend to be counties that have 
cannabis mm-hmm. legislation in place. So like they're a little bit more progressive, forward thinking, open-minded towards change. And I think that those are going to be the areas of opportunity for legislative change to really happen first and help set the example for what national level change can look like. Hmm. And for those of us, Alice, who are not in the sex work space, um, not legal sex work workers or generally speaking sex workers, how can we support this activism movement, right? How can we continue um, to be allies to sex workers and advocate for their rights um, to autonomy and, and safety? The first thing would be awareness. There is a differentiation between sex work and sex trafficking. Mm. And unfortunately, many sex trafficking, or I should say many anti sex trafficking organizations are not actually preventing sex trafficking. They're trying to prevent sex from existing on the internet. Mm. These same nonprofits, such as Exodus Cry, have their origin back in the 80s as censorship organizations, and the reality is that their mission has not changed. These are the organizations that are responsible for Pornhub not being able to appear in states such as Utah. Mm -hmm. These organizations are not preventing sex trafficking, nor are they rescuing sex trafficking victims. The best way to support and end sex trafficking is to have legislation in place that supports consensual sex work. The, The legislation that needs to happen to prevent sex trafficking is the same legislation that empowers sex workers. Mm. The reality is sex work isn't going to go away. It's been with us since the dawn of time. We have evidence of it in every single civilization, city, country, all throughout history. It's not going away. We need to learn to live with it. And once we learn to live with it, we will actually be able to prevent those people that are being trafficked from being trafficked. It's the best way to prevent harm from happening. Mm. I want to like snap and clap in in affirmation and confirmation, but as a podcaster, that's not an effective (laughs) way of showing that I agree with you. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> but but I agree with you. And um the awareness stop supporting the anti-trafficking organizations that are truly anti-porn and anti-sex organizations. That I would say is the first and biggest thing that people can do to be an ally and helpful to sex workers is stop supporting that nonsense. Mm. It doesn't mean what they tell you it means. All the posters in the like flyers in the airports and the bathrooms and like the hotels, they are virtually meaningless. Friends, they spend so much money on that paper and virtually zero dollars on actually supporting and rescuing sex workers. In fact, most of the time when you see a recovery case in the news where they say that they've quote unquote, rescued however many women from the Asia massage parlor where they were being sex trafficked. 
The story doesn't tell you that they turned around and deported those women. Mm -hmm. That's the part of the story that you don't get to hear. There's no magic organization that swept in and saved those women and prevented them from being re-trafficked. They were just sent back to their home country. There was no safety net. That doesn't exist because that's not what those organizations do. Mm. The organizations that actually support sex trafficking victims oftentimes are sex worker-led organizations themselves because they truly are able to recognize the difference between sex work versus sex trafficking. So funding organizations that are sex worker-led and specifically organizations that are mutual aid-focused is going to be the right kind of place to direct your dollars. Hmm. And the lesson is, like it is so often, honestly, from the show, is um, doing a little bit more due diligence than you think you need to, right? There's so much to be learned around media literacy. Um, we're, we're fed advertisements and, uh, you know, unrealistic escapism fantasy all the time. And sometimes that stuff is great. And sometimes, to your point, it's manipulating a demographic who is seeking to help, uh, you know, sex workers or, you know, those who are sex sex trafficked. And in fact, um, it's really doing the opposite. It's creating more harm than good. So doing that extra step of research is so important and knowing who and what you're actually giving your time and money to um, is absolutely crucial. Though, yes, it requires a little bit more work on our parts, but that work can go a long way. It's like the difference between Cirque du Soleil and Shen Yun. Mm -hmm. One is a beautiful display of circus arts. One is secretly a cult. Like, (laughs) these are not the same thing, but on the outside, you look at the advertisements, oh boy, you would think they're one and the same. Yep, that's a really good example. Um, And are are there, you know, two or three kind of top organizations that for folks who are seeking to help, um, whether it be in a funding standpoint or if there are any other relevant volunteer or activism opportunities, like are there certain organizations you highly recommend people support? Uh, Sex Workers Outreach Project is fantastic. Sex Workers Behind Bars is wonderful. They do a lot of activism specifically around sex workers that are facing penalty through the criminal justice system, which isn't really a just system Mm. in, well, most people's opinion. So I think their work is extremely beautiful and important. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a number of individual local sex worker organizations. I like the sex worker mutual aid called Suede. It started out as sex worker mutual aid Las Vegas, but now they do micro grants for the entire sex work community, Mm. not just Las Vegas. So they've grown tremendously. There's a Meals on Heels organization out in Portland that does like food for strippers that are dancing and make sure that they're able to get quality nutrition like there's so many different little local organizations that i would say start in your own backyard Mm. and then take a look at some of the national orgs amazing that's a super helpful list to get folks started if they don't know where to look but yes look around ask people in your community um if you don't know 
slide into my DMs. I'm always happy to research local organizations and try to help who I can. I'm going to maybe, I've maybe opened a gateway to too many DMs, but <laughs> it's, it's, nope. Now you, now you started the floodgates. Uh oh. Offering help once again. Oh no. No, I think it's, it's so important. And again, sometimes supporting causes that matter, people who deserve autonomy and safety and rights like everyone does requires a little bit more work on our part than lazy internet activism. And you know what? We need to all do our part and put in that much more effort to to be part of the, the greater good and, and change over time. Um, so I know, Alice, you just mentioned a ton of organizations for folks listening. I will add um, those to a list in the show notes so that way you can conveniently find them. Alice, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you through all of this. It's such an important topic. And I think that you have shed a lot of light on the reality of legal sex work and, and sex work um, as it pertains to, to stateside legislation. And it's, it's, I feel like I could pick your brain about this for another like several hours and I'm going to spare you the time and effort on that. But I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Um, is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to, you know, make sure that we touch on before um, we wrap up? Yeah, I think that it's important to take note that sex work legislation internationally is being done correctly in many locations. Mm. For anyone who's curious what an ideal system looks like, take a look at what New Zealand has in place. They really are the model of decriminalization with legislation. They have brothels, small co-op brothels, as well as independent licenses where women can work on their own. It really allows for the most options possible. And I really think that we have a lot to learn from the system that they have in play. That's amazing. And I think hopefully that continues to... Um, you know, dispel some of the misconceptions about the goal, right, or the objective around decriminalization and, and establishing safety and, and regulations or having different um, methods, like you said, different options for folks to pursue um, sex work in a, in a safe and, um, you know, like normalized way at, at kind of the legislative level. And there, there's a there's a reference. We can copy and paste it. So, yeah, mentally that helps to normalize it, but also it, it means that it's feasible. It exists. Our country can do it too. It just takes a little bit more work for those of us who are seeking to help instill some of that change. Yes, indeed, and well put. <laughs> Alice, thank you so much again for your time. Um, it, it's it's absolutely amazing to have you on the show. If folks are looking to follow you on Instagram or any other social media, um, how, how should they go about getting in touch with you um, and, and following some of your work? The best way to find me is through my website, www.thealicelittle.com. That is going to have links to all of my social media accounts. On Instagram, I am the Alice Little Official. And on Twitter, you can find me under the Alice Little EDU. Fun fact, I have had my Twitter account deleted like five times. So like, oh my God. I've had to change that handle so frequently. 
It happens to sex workers so, yes. so often that we end up deplatformed. So the best place to find me is going to be my website because if anything gets deleted, I will rise like the phoenix and just make <laughs> another platform. Amazing. Yes. Shadow banning and deplatforming is incredibly common in, in this space. <laughs> it's, so annoying. it's super annoying. It. It, it's yeah. People have to start from scratch so often. Um, folks, give some love to your sex workers, sex therapists, sex coaches on the internet because it is not easy to be out here creating content. <laughs> Um, it's so hard. It's so hard. It is so, so hard. <laughs> they do not make it easy. Um, okay, well, Alice, I have included your website in the show notes below. Folks, check out the website, check out the socials. Alice, thank you again so much. Um, I, I'm so grateful for your time and knowledge here. And folks, um, thank you for tuning in. We will see you all next time. Bye.